Good morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for choosing to be here on a beautiful day and uh, to gather together with the body of believers. And so uh, just thank you. Thank you for being here on this Father's Day. And so uh, I read a story that I'd read oh, a couple years ago and I reread it just uh, the last week or two. It was a really remarkable story of a of an airline pilot and his heroics in saving uh, his whole uh, or basically uh, uh, his plane and all that those who are on it. And the, and the story goes, it was a guy who had been flying with 38 years of experience and he was flying a flight from Honolulu uh, to New Zealand. And the story took place uh, about 20 years ago. And as they took off uh, on this flight from Honolulu to New Zealand, almost uh, immediately after they got to their uh, altitude and started going along and got up to kind of the speed that they go and everything, uh, one of the cargo doors blew off. And as it did, it immediately sucked nine people out with it because of the pressure and all the change and all this happened immediately. And so the pilot becomes aware of this, that the cargo door had blown off and what happens. And so immediately he's going to try to figure out what to do. And suddenly he realizes he's faced with a whole lot of really difficult circumstances. Obviously, that's pretty difficult when you lose passengers and this thing happens and all this stuff's happening. But as he started to think through in his mind, he had a whole host of things that he had to take into consideration. One was, as they'd just taken off for Honolulu to fly to New Zealand, the plane had way too much fuel to be able to land immediately. And so he has to take that into consideration. The second thing is the speed at which they're traveling. If he continues, it's going to start to rip the plane apart with this hole in it because of the pressure and all those things. And so what he did is he slowed the plane down to as slow as it possibly could go just above the stall speed so that he would keep minimize the damage to the side of the plane. But then he still had the problem of how do I land it with all this extra weight from the fuel he's carrying? And so he turned back to go back to land in Honolulu. And as he's making these calculations, he came up with through through many years of of faithful service and all that he's done. He was making some calculations and he realized that he could land the plane despite the extra fuel, but he would have to land faster than you normally land. He couldn't slow down to the normal speed. So now he's going to land the plane going faster than you're supposed to be going with all this extra weight from the extra fuel. And so he did. That's all he had to do. And so he went ahead and landed the plane. And later the crew would say that it was probably the smoothest landing they had ever had in all their time of being on a plane. And he landed it. He made the calculations perfectly and he landed it safely. Now, they lost the nine people that that happened right when the door was blown off. But everyone else was safe. It's a really remarkable story that he was so quick and calm and he could do all those things and make those calculations And and get them on the ground safely. Well, afterwards, they asked him as the pilot, what were you thinking? What went through your mind when this happened? And he said, as soon as he realized what was going on, he said a quick prayer for his passengers. And then he got back to work. I thought, what a cool story, a cool picture of the way he looked at it. I have a job to do. And so I'm going to do my job now. And so we hear that story and we hear the remarkable story, extraordinary circumstances, somebody using their gifts and staying calm under pressure. And this remarkable thing that he saved a lot of lives by doing so. And we go, that's incredible. That's awesome. What a wonderful testimony and what he did and all those things. And we can see that. But the truth is that guy, as amazing as that is, he got up the next day or the next week. Maybe they gave him a week off for that or maybe two weeks and he had to go back to work. Or two weeks later, his alarm's still going off. Or he goes home and he still has to mow his lawn. He still has to do all the things. 
the truth is, oftentimes we're not faced with those incredible, extraordinary circumstances in our work. And we can look at things like that amazing story and go, wow, that's incredible. And look at what he did and how he saved lives and all that. And that's true. And it should be applauded. It's an incredible story. But what about serving God in the everyday and in the mundane and when your alarm goes off tomorrow? We've been talking about work the last couple of weeks, that God has given us work to do, that he's called us into this. Uh, we've been kind of walking through, if, you went, if you've been with us, this is the fourth week. The first week we looked at that God's going to redeem all work, that everything that we see when he returns and set things right, we'll see that our work wasn't for nothing. God's going to use that and bring that, and so we can trust in that. The second week we talked about how work is ordained and brought forth by God before sin enters. It's not an evil byproduct of our rebellion against God, but it's a good gift that God gave us from the beginning. And then last week we looked at how we misuse our work oftentimes, how it becomes difficult and it becomes hard because we are living in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And so we try to make work be things that it was never intended to be. And it causes all kinds of problems. And so today I want us to think about how do we honor and glorify God in the work that we have to do and not just the great big heroic examples like we hear of this pilot, as wonderful as that is, but the mundane, the everyday things that we have to do. How do we honor God in those things each day when the alarm goes off? Because most of us, we're going to leave here today and we're going to go home and then our alarm's going to go off tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning. And Wednesday and all the things that we have to do. And so how do we honor God? How do we see what God's given us to do in light of that and honor God in all those things? And so that's what I want us to look at and think about today. We're going to look at the passage from first Peter that we read just a minute ago. First Peter chapter four. It's on page 658 in the Pew Bible. If you want to turn there with me. But as you're getting there, as you're thinking about that, let's pray and ask God to lead and guide us as we open his word together. And then we'll look at that together. God, we do thank you for the truth of your word, how vast it is and how it applies to all these different areas of our life. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in this way. As we open your word, we just confess we cannot do this without you. And so we ask the Holy Spirit would lead and guide and teach us that you would apply these things to our hearts and our minds as we open your word together, that you would show us what you want us to see. Uh, We can't do this without you. And so we need you illuminating our hearts and our minds, pointing us more fully to who you are and what you have for us in Christ. We pray it in his precious name. Amen. And so as we look at first Peter, we're going to be in chapter four this morning. Two basic things I want us to look at as we think about how do we uh, go about our work day in and day out, the things that we have right in front of us. And so what I want us to look at is first, how do we transform to see all of our work right now, all that we are and all that we're doing, even the mundane and the little things? How do we make that be glorifying to God and go forth in that? And then secondly, as we begin to see what Peter tells us, because he gives us a reasoning for how that works. Then secondly, we're going to think about the practical outworkings of this. What does that actually look like in our day to day? How does that look? And so let's just start with the 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 basic, basic importance of understanding our work in the proper light. You know, we talked last week about all the ways that we misuse it and misunderstand it. But look at what first Peter says, chapter four, verses one and two. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And let's stop right there for just a second. Uh, we're jumping into first Peter chapter four, right in the middle uh, of the book. We've we've gone through first Peter and second Peter in our men's uh, prayer breakfast over the last maybe six months or so. And so we spent a lot of time in first and second Peter. But here I'm jumping right into it. And let me just tell you, Peter's writing to the early church that's suffering and struggling. There's very real hardships on them. There's a very real uh, uh, attraction to maybe walk away from their faith because of what's going on in the world around them. Uh, as you read through this passage, he's telling them that this is not who you are. This is who you are now in Christ. And he's, and he's addressing these other ways that the world around them will live because those things could look very attractive when you're being uh, berated and attacked and persecuted for your beliefs for not living that way. And so he's telling them, you're not going to live this way, and here's why. And so it's important for us to get this uh, theological underpinning, this foundational truth of why that they're now different. And so he says here, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so whenever the Bible says, this is basic, basic, how we read and study our Bible, it's so important when we look at it. Whenever it says, since therefore, and then it tells you something, the writer, whether it's Peter here or oftentimes in Paul's letter, when he says, since therefore, he's just made a great big, huge point, And now he's making uh, an application or the next step in his thinking. And so whenever you see someone say, therefore, you need to look back what's before it. This is basic, basic when we read our Bible. We don't just open up and read first Peter four and see a therefore and just ignore it. Uh, I heard Randy Pope at Perimeter Church when I was 20 years old. Say, if you see therefore, you ask what the therefore is there for. And it is so corny that now it will be stuck in your brain and you'll never forget it. Right. I I learned that when I was 20 and it's there because he said you look back and you see why it's there. And you ask the question, what is it there for? Well, when you look back up, I think he explains what he's talking about. Because if you just take this out of context, it can be kind of confusing. Right? Because Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And so what is he talking about and what is he getting at? And I think the answer is if you go back to verse 18 in chapter three, right? he says this in chapter three, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so this is fundamental, basic understanding of what we believe as Christians. The righteous one, Jesus, suffered for us, the unrighteous. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God allowed Jesus to be sin on our behalf that he could bring us to God. That's what Peter is saying here in verse 18. He suffered once for sins, the unrighteous or the righteous for the unrighteous, that he could bring us to God. And he's dead in sin. He puts to death, uh, death and sin. Christ does for us. And then he raises God, raises him in the spirit and he does the same in us. It's a picture of what has now happened in us in Christ. And so Peter calls us to that. And then he says that here, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this is the way you now go forward. And this is not an idea that's unique to Peter. It's all throughout the New Testament over and over and over again. 
Probably my favorite that I go to often is Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Christ. You were dead, spiritually speaking. You're self-centered and selfish apart from a miracle of God, of Christ coming into your life, the Holy Spirit bringing you to see who Christ is and bringing you to life, making you aware of who God is and what it looks like to have a relationship with him. That's a miracle that God does. Spiritually dead people cannot make themselves alive. So Ephesians 2 says you were dead, but God, because of his mercy, made you alive in Jesus. So you were dead and now you're alive. Titus 3 says the same thing. When the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You're dead. The spirit comes in, brings you to life, points you to Jesus. He's the one that saves you. And then he goes on to say, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. And we could go on and on and on and on and keep looking at passages that point us to that. We're dead, spiritually speaking. We don't care about God or his ways or his things. And then God does a miracle in us and brings us to life and points us to who he is through Jesus. By faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, we're saved. That's fundamental to everything we believe. And I never tire of saying that, and I say that every week, and I'm going to continue to say it every week. Because that is absolutely who we are. But then the next step is there's now a fundamental difference now in who we are. Right? The end of the first verse there, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now that you've been brought to life in Christ, you have a new outlook, a new way of seeing these things. You are now uh, Godward in your direction through the Holy Spirit and what he's done. And he says, so now you live that way. That's Peter's reasoning. You were this, but now you're this. So live what you now are. You are now alive in Christ through the spirit. And so you live this way. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the way he says it. This is now who you are in Jesus. And so it's what it looks like to live that way. Paul will say the exact same thing in Romans six. We know that our old self was crucified in him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Right? We often talk about that in baptism. You are dead and now you're a new creation. You come out of the water and now you're going to walk seeking to follow God in all things because this is now who you are. That's the picture in Scripture. And it says it over and over and over and it keeps coming us back to that. Walk out who you now are in Christ. And this is what it looks like to live this way. First Corinthians six, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Just stop and think about that for a second. We say those kind of things often. Your body is a temple of the very living God of the universe who now lives inside of you. The the temple used to be, here's the holy of holies, and then Jesus finished his work, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, and he tears the veil, and he says, it's now in you. You're now the temple. 
And so Paul says, in light of that, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Foundational to who we are. Peter's pointing you to the same thing here. And so I say all of that and you go, OK, well, great. What does that have to do with work? What does that have to do with my alarm clock going off tomorrow morning? Or what happens when I get to home after going to work all day and I need to mow my lawn? What in the world does any of that have to do with that? Let's say everything. Has everything to do with all of those things. Living in the spirit and now what this looks like, we now live in a different way. God's given us a different, completely turned us around to what this now looks like. And so how do we live this out? Last week, we talked about the problems of our work, the things that we seek to make, whatever our work is, whether it's our our employment that we get paid for or just the things that we do day to day or the things that we have in front of us and the things that we try to get out of it. We try to seek to make a name for ourselves. We seek to work for our own benefit, uh, to make our mark, to leave a legacy, to bring validation in my life. When I do these things and do them well, then I will be accepted because I'm doing well and I'm working hard and I'm doing those things. And see, the problem with every single one of those, as we talked about it last week, is every single one of those is based and rooted on you being the center of all there is. I work really hard so that I'm accepted. Do you see how when I see that and I assign all these things to my work, I'm going to leave a mark. I'm going to validate myself. I'm going to make a name. I'm going to make lots of money so I can get things and I can do things and all this stuff. It's all centered on me. And what Peter tells you is that you've died to you and you are now alive in Christ and you're no longer about your flesh and just you. Now you're about who God is and what he's done and it changes everything. All the ways that we were operating is not how you're operating anymore. God's remaking you. He's changing the way we walk through this life and what that looks like. And he begins to remake us. And so instead of it being based all on you, it's based on him. And so he says in verse two, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. You now get to live out the rest of your life for God's glory because of what he's done for you and through you and in you in Christ. He's now remaking you. He's changing you to be something different. He's bringing you from one glory, uh, one degree of glory to another. And he's going to do this work in you. And so now we start to live this way. So I want us to think about how does that redeem our work today? Now, practically, how do we live that out? Knowing that being grace bought people who now see that my entire life revolves around what Christ graciously did for me. No doing of my own because he set his affections on me because he loves me and he did this work in me. How do I now live that out? Day by day. And so look at what Peter says, starting in verse seven. I'm skipping over a few verses there, but he kind of gives you the picture of the way the world lives. And then he turns to what you should look like now. And so look at what he says in verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so I want us to look at the way he says the practical outworking. And I want to be careful that I don't misuse the text. I think the immediate context is Peter is talking about spiritual gifts. And so I want to make sure I say that clearly. I think that's where he's going when he talks here about the spiritual gifts that we now have in Christ as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. You are a new creation. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and God gifts you in different ways through his spirit for the good of the body. Paul says that he tells us the gifts that God gives us in first Corinthians. He tells us that God gives you gifts, not for your own glory or for all about you. It's so that you can serve other people. I think Peter's saying something very similar here, right? God's gifted you in these ways. And so I think he's talking about primarily your spiritual gifts. And so I want to make sure that I say that God's gifted you specifically in some ways through his spirit when you become a believer. But I also want to apply it to the way that we go forth and do all our work and all that we are in all things, because as the spirit comes in and remakes us, yes, he gives us uh, particularly in some certain ways in the spirit. But he also begins to remake all of our affections and all of our outlook in all things and in every way. He begins to remake your heart. He begins to bring you, conform you to the image of his son. And God begins to remake us and to do that. And as he does, I think you can look at verse 10 and he says, as each has received a gift, so use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And I think we can begin to look at that and look at the way that applies as a secondary application to our own work that we do every day. That as God remakes us, as we are this new creation, as we've been brought from death to life, we now can begin to work out of that as people who are bought by grace, by what God's done for us. We can use our gifts and our works day to day to now serve others. We've been freed from all the ways that we misuse our work that we talked about uh, last week. All the things that we seek to let uh, our work be, we are now freed from those. I don't have to make a name for myself. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to be so obsessed with my own security and all these things because I already have all of those in fullness in Jesus. And so now I can use my work to actually serve other people and glorify God. I'm not so obsessed with all these things and what people are going to pat me on the back and say, good job and all those things. I'm going to do it for his glory and to serve others. And so Peter tells you, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It points us to that picture I want us to think about this the second week when we talked about God is the one who ordained and gave us work. So be fruitful, multiply the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the earth, all the things that that entails. I want you to just think about what it looks like day to day, uh, all the people that are involved in making our world run in the way it runs. Have you ever thought about that? 
How did we get this building that we're sitting in, standing in? How many people were involved in physically constructing this place? The guys that pour the concrete, the framers, the roofers. I got to finish the floor. Every part of different people, the people that cleared the land, all of it. What happens if everybody stops working? Think about when you go to the gas station and you get gas. What all went into that? Right? We take these things for granted because we do them every day. Or you go to the grocery store and there it is stocked with everything you could want right in front of you. How did that happen? A whole lot of people gifted in all different ways working. If everybody stopped, what would happen? Things would get real hard real fast. All the things that I don't have a clue how to do. I'd be in trouble. Right? We need one another in the way God has gifted us in different ways. God's given us all work to do, and he's gifted us in different ways. When he gave us the mandate to subdue the earth and go out and do all these things and bring it together, there's a picture of it's going to take a lot of people working together. He made us that way. He made us in his image to be focused primarily on God and have a relationship with him and then others. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You know how he summarized it. Love the Lord, your God, with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Right. That's the picture. He says, that's the greatest. And then the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on that hangs all the commandments that summarizes all of them. Love God and love people. That's the way we were made. But in our sinfulness, we've turned inward and we make it all about what I do for my glory and for me and what I can get and who I'm going to step on. And all those things we talked about last week that are so bad. But then when God brings us to life and he turns us back out, we now get to use our work as it was originally intended to work together and to serve one another for God's glory. And so when we see that, we can begin to see that everything that we have around us is a way to serve others. Think about that big picture of how everything's functioning and working wherever you are in your life and what you're doing and where God's placing you. You're playing some small part in that. You're helping to serve others and what God's given you to do. We all have a part to play in that. And so we get to serve God in these different ways together to point back to who he is. Think about it as a grace bought person. Everything I am is what Jesus has done for me. A practical outworking of that is I now get to serve other people with the gifts that God's given me. That's what Peter says. And so everything we do is an opportunity to serve other people. To point to God's glory in all things. And so we begin to do that. We begin to be transformed into his likeness. And instead of being all about me, it's now can be about God and other people. And so we do that practically. I want you to think about all those different things we do, how that works out practically, how you show that you love others. It's that you do a good job. You do your work well. You're competent in what you do and where God's placed you and you do it to the best of your ability. Think about when you want to show someone you love them, what you do and the ways you do it. I think about it being Father's Day. My boys greet me at the door with cards that they drew themselves. And I remember doing that. 
I remember doing that for my dad and my mom when I was a kid and drawing cards. And I would sit down and I'd try to draw it as good and as nice and as pretty as I could because I wanted to present it to him. Look, here you go. It's a very practical way that we serve and love others. We, we love others by serving them and doing it well. And so in your work, wherever God's placed you, whatever you wake up tomorrow and have to do in front of you, you have an opportunity to love the people around you by serving them, by doing good work. Oftentimes we get into this weird separation of the, the, the secular and what's holy. God's given us work is a good thing to do. And so we get to serve people in that. And so let's just end with this real quickly here. The wonderful byproducts when we see that. When we have the foundation that Peter lays here. That you are bought with what Christ has done. That he's brought you to life. That you are now doing these things because he is working in you. It's all his doing. You get to serve people in that. There's wonderful byproducts when we actually begin to do that. And the first is, I already mentioned it, but it combats all the ways that we misuse our work. All the ways that we want to make it all about me and what I do and I want my uh, people to recognize me and all those things. When I'm rooted and grounded in all that I have and all that I am is by grace alone and nothing else. How in the world do I function that way? It makes no sense. And so I get to go out and love and serve people as a person who is bought by what Christ has done for me. It, re- it can remove that peace when I put my focus on him, when I make it all about what he is and what he's done. We don't have to fight to prove ourselves or for our security because we're already proven and secure in Jesus. Or as we begin to do it, it guards us against seeing some work is less than other work. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's something we've made up, usually based on monetary value that we now assign to it in our culture. But when we see all things are an opportunity to serve others and what God's done and who he is, it's a wonderful gift from us that we see all work is valuable. See that the way God's gifted different people and all different things, that is good. The last two days I've been working in my yard, digging holes and building things for 12 hours. And I'm so sore and so tired and I'm so thankful that God's gifted other people to be really good at that. Because it's good work and we need that and we need those things. And it's not less than anything else that we assign greater value to. And so that begins when we're grace-driven people that see that as who we are. It begins to level that and we see that all things are helpful. But then it also frees us to love and serve others, not because of what they can give us, validation, good job, way to go, but because of what God's already done for us and who we are in Christ. I don't have to do my work and try to do it well so that I will earn validation. It's something I already have in Christ. I get to now live this out and do it the best I can. Do you see the difference? There's a lot of good byproducts. But then the last one, and I'll end here with this this morning, is that when we're freed to love and serve other people, you're aligning with the way you were made. You were made in God's image. 
right? The, the Trinity at the very beginning. God is the perfect picture of love. Right? In and of himself. He didn't create us to make that, so he has something to love. He's already perfect love in and of himself. And he's perfectly outwardly focused on every part. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit moving perfectly together in all things. And so when we begin to to focus on God and other people, we begin to align ourselves with the way God made us. And so when God tells us over and over that it's better to be focused, to love God and to love other people, when he says that's the summary of all of it, when that's the picture that's there, he has your best interest at heart. You will both be most joyous and most satisfied when you center on God and then you love people as an overflow out of that instead of making it all about yourself. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes because everything in our world says the exact opposite. But that's the picture that God gives us. And it's a wonderful joy that we get to rest in that. And so let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the work that you've given us to do. We thank you most of all for what you've done for us in Jesus and how that transforms all of us. And I pray that you'd continue to remake us into your image, that you'd continue to show us clearly how we can love and serve other peoples for your glory and for your honor in all things. Pray that you give us opportunities this week as we wake up tomorrow and all the things that we have to do that we would seek to be uh, in service to others and loving them for your honor and your glory. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.